folks, it's time for Democratic Perspective, brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show about the crucial political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and the nation at large. Join us for a stimulating, thought-provoking discussion. You'll get the facts as we focus on the challenges facing everyone. Good morning, audience. Uh, I am your guest host, Holly Plug. Steve is enjoying himself on a much-needed vacation, and we'll be gone the entire month of August. So every Monday morning, you will have a new guest host. I'd like to welcome today uh, Matt Goodwin. Matt is a uh, has a Ph.D. in philosophy and has taught environmental ethics, media ethics, Technology and Human Values at Northern Arizona University, Coconino Community College, and Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. He's often featured as a speaker at libraries and schools for the Arizona Humanities, Arizona Speaks program, and he's co-founder of Sedona Philosophy, which offers guided hikes and retreats in Sedona and Northern Arizona. So, Matt... When you and I were talking the other day, we were talking about philosophy and why global warming is not only a scientific issue, but also a philosophical problem. Can you tell our listeners what that actually means? Sure, Holly. Thank you for having me. And uh, the philosophy, philosophy literally means uh, the love of wisdom. Uh, so love of wisdom uh, b- basically means that uh, we uh, it, it is not the same thing as knowledge uh, when we love wisdom. Uh, wisdom is about what we do with our knowledge. And so uh, it, is, uh, it is something that we spend our lifetime trying to achieve, and we never really know exactly when we have achieved it. And uh, it, it's, it's more about what, what to do with our knowledge. So I may know how to do something. I may have a technology. I may know how to build something and to, to use a technology. But that does not necessarily mean that we should do it. So uh, I may be a locksmith. I may know how to open every lock. But wisdom is uh, knowing not to necessarily open every lock. And uh, that's where I think uh, global warming is a philosophical issue. Uh, we have uh, uh, quite a bit of knowledge uh, about what we uh, can do, but it's not necessarily what we should do. And we need to start thinking philosophically, I think, about what kinds of technologies we're using. And I think one of the things that we're doing is we're relying on very old technology and that uh, there's a lot of current technology that we should be using more of. Well, can you give us a few examples? Well, uh, science tells us that uh, we have the technology available to uh, replace uh, all of our energy demands. Uh, And so renewables, uh, mainly solar and wind and hydro, uh, uh, are currently capable of replacing uh, all of our fossil fuels. Uh, There's an author, Mark Z. Jacobson, that I recommend. Uh, He just came out with a book last year that uh, details uh, his plan for how you can do this. Uh, It doesn't mean that it's cheap, uh, so I'm not trying to say that this is a a free technology. It it does require an investment, uh, but it is a long-term investment. It does mean that uh, we will, in the long run, be making very cheap electricity. The difference is that uh, the, the cost is up front, and, and that's one of the big challenges. And, and you know, I've, I've been reading a lot about uh, climate change recently, and, you know, Sedona just uh, 
approved, the city council approved the Sedona Climate Action Plan, uh, which does contain a number of very specific actions that people can take. Can you uh, tell our listeners a little bit more about what you see as uh, the good, the bad, and what's missing from the Sedona Climate Action Plan? Well, the uh, the plan has eight pages of specific action items. Uh, and uh, at first glance, it may look like uh, almost everything is voluntary, uh, which I think is a good thing. It's not uh, something that's requiring any specific actions from any residents. Uh, so it's uh, specific actions, but the majority of them are voluntary. Uh, only uh, a handful are actually regulatory. And, of course, the, the regulatory actions are actually ones that involve the state or federal government as well. So it's not necessarily that the uh, the city is imposing any specific regulations. Uh, but uh, there's a voluntary uh, uh, attempts to try to persuade people to uh, update appliances when they are at the end of their normal life cycle. Uh, I, for example, just had to replace my uh, water heater. Uh, I had a gas water heater, and instead of replacing it with another gas water heater, I replaced it with an electric tankless water heater, which turns out to be much more uh, efficient, and we really like it a lot. Uh, And uh, so it helps to have some incentives to help promote these things so that people understand that this is a good new technology. Uh, And that's a lot of what I'm seeing in the climate plan is attempts to incentivize and educate people on the alternative technologies that are available. And and uh, I know that the plan, the the guidelines are and the targets are to achieve a 50 percent reduction in carbon emissions by 2030. I mean that is a pretty uh, large target for a short period of time since it's 2021 right now. Right, right, and uh, you know. I think there's there's definitely there's there's leeway in this plan, but what I've seen in other uh, municipalities is that they've actually been able to do it a lot quicker than they anticipated. Uh, they've actually been able to get closer. I know that California uh, ended up moving towards uh, uh, moving up their dates and their proposals uh, because they were hitting all of their their guides their goals uh, earlier than they anticipated. And what was if you know what was the most effective uh, features of their plan you know how did they achieve them earlier well um uh, you know i'm not sure that i can give off the top of my head the, the specifics of of uh, the plan because part of it is it's it's a lot of different agencies working together it's municipalities it's the state it's it's also industry and and i actually think that utilities uh, have usually the clearest uh, uh, roadmap towards uh, getting to zero emissions. Uh, and so that's what's a feature of the Sedona Climate Plan, is it also is very reliant on uh, the utilities being able to go carbon neutral. Uh, and uh, so they usually have a clearer uh, kind of roadmap to be able to say, okay, here's the technology we're going to invest in. Here's the amount of megawatts we're going to be replacing with renewable megawatts. Um, whereas I think it's a, it's a lot harder for a city to be able to say, okay, you know, here's exactly what our emissions are and here's exactly how we've cut them back. So it's a little bit uh, more difficult to measure it. And I think that's what the city council has kind of run into. Uh, it gets into these murky areas. 
but it's it's more when you are working with other agencies like in transportation or the utility utilities that you're able to more clearly identify the reductions that you're able to make. Yes, and a- APS has been a part of the Climate Action Plan working group with the city, and uh, and they certainly are pretty uh, pretty strongly believe that they will be able to achieve their part of mm-hmm. of the um, emissions reduction. So, why are people so resistant about climate change? What tell us about the the myths around climate misinformation? Well, I, th- I think the, the biggest thing is uh, uh, people value certain things that they don't want to lose. And when we look at uh, the types of actions we need to make regarding climate change, it means there, go- there are going to be s- specific changes in our behavior. Uh, and I think one of the primary ones is just in our automobiles. We're, we're definitely an auto-centric nation. We, are, we love our automobiles, and, and, and I'm one who does as well. Uh, I actually grew up, uh, my father uh, was an amateur race car driver. Uh, and at one point, I actually thought maybe I might become a race car driver. And so I have a strong attachment to automobiles as well. But I've also looked at the technology of electric vehicles, and I realize that they are far superior than gasoline engine cars. So I'm excited about the new technology. But I do know that there's a lot of resistance to this. Uh, people are used to the old technology. It's it's a very distinct skill that people have developed to be able to work on gasoline engine cars. And we're going to completely change that. And so that's a that's a hard move to make. And people are used to power in an automobile being associated with noise and a certain smell. <laughs> and so uh, those are the types of things that are, uh, I think, very powerful uh, uh, roadblocks to uh, new technologies. Uh, and we see this historically a lot of times. People just don't want to get rid of their old technology. Uh, but I think it's also something that we can be very excited about. Uh, I think there's so much good new technology that people just haven't seen in action and and have not uh, had experience with. Uh, and just off the top of my head, again, talking, you know, I could talk about electric vehicles for, for a whole hour <laughs> here, um, but um, um, most electric vehicles don't have a regularly scheduled maintenance of their brakes until over 100,000 miles. And in most cases, electric vehicles, when you uh, start working on the brakes, even after 100,000 miles, they look brand new. Uh, and that's because these uh, electric vehicles use regenerative brakes that actually regenerates more electricity. And so you don't actually use the physical brakes uh, that are in the wheels. So that is a lot less wear and tear. Uh, the car has a lot fewer parts uh, and uh, is a lot easier to maintain. So are you saying that because electric vehicles are more expensive to mm-hmm. acquire, right? So are you saying that over a period of time, you're upfront investment reduces the maintenance costs exactly exactly and then also your uh, the cost of uh, recharging the the automobile is a lot less than refueling with gasoline and of course that requires an investment in infrastructure right. Well, yeah, that's a good point. Um, And it also requires that uh, the utilities are also making clean electricity. And so that's, again, where it kind of goes back to the utilities. It's not just uh, individual personal choice of me deciding I'm going to buy a car. Uh, I I need to be sure that I'm recharging that with clean energy as well. And, and yeah, that's an infrastructure problem. And and, and there's also different technologies as in the Tesla 
vehicles require a different electric charger than some of the other vehicles. Mm-hmm. Reminded me of of uh, years ago when you had the Betamax, <laughs> you know. <Right. laughs> so yeah. eventually, will will uh, Teslas be? You know, will there be a common charging? Methodology or my understanding is that has not yet really been a big hindrance. There's enough adapters that are available that there's enough crossover that people are usually not in any kind of a difficulty here. You know, again, and I think this is the the, kind of the philosophical problem of, well, how much do I actually use my car on an average day, even an average week? uh, People are not driving as much as they think that they are. Uh, or not as far as they are. Uh, I think uh, the average is between 20 to 50 miles per day. Well, you really don't need a uh, long-distance uh, driving vehicle. So uh, you can actually uh, rest assured that you've got plenty of a charge, and you'll be able to bring your car right back home and plug it in, or you've got your own plug, and you've got the setup that's already there. And, and so it's really only when we're traveling that you really have to start thinking a little bit more ahead. And we've kind of gotten used to just being able to just hit the open road and know that there's going to be a gas station wherever we go. Uh, And it's just going to require now a little bit more planning. And uh, there's opportunities, frankly, for people to stop and rest a little bit more and and look around, which uh, has other benefits as well. Well, I I think that that's the fear. I know a lot of people who have electric vehicles have have the other car Mm -hmm. that they take when they go on trips, the gasoline car or they're a hybrid right just for those reasons Mm -hmm. well you know my view is it's it's kind of a new adventure uh and 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 i think people will take that the wrong way of saying oh you know it's going to be scary uh but it's uh it's a new adventure of kind of planning uh and saying well where where do we want to go where we know that we can charge uh and and i've i've found chargers and all kinds of crazy places where i wouldn't have expected and i've said oh wow this would be a nice place to just hang out for a little while and you know uh take a rest and uh so yeah i think that there's uh, there's it, it, this is what really kind of requires that we change the way that we think about the way we do things and that is uncomfortable i think for a lot of people now, what about transit? You know, how do we get people out of their cars for the love of cars that we have? The city is about to make a large investment in the transit system, and there are some people who are very excited about that, both for residents and for visitors. And then there's other people who believe that that might be a, a wasted expenditure because of the fact that people won't get out of their cars no matter what. So how do you respond to that? Well, first off, I want to point out that the uh, the climate plan is uh, nice because it is uh, advocating for uh, the mass transit, uh, which solves another problem that people complain about, and that's the traffic. So that's a nice thing about this is that it has a, a dual it solves dual problems, uh, and uh, and that is part of again the the kind of the psychological problem that people may have is getting out of their car and sharing a space with other people. Um, but I find that when you go to cities where they have the infrastructure of mass transit that works well and effectively and quickly and is clean, it's really, really nice. And uh, and I do think that 
it becomes a shared experience, which I think, again, is what sometimes people don't want. And that's the concern is that maybe we need more shared experiences of getting on a bus or getting on a light rail. Uh, and uh, you know, maybe, again, this is something that needs to get us out of our comfort zone. Uh, and uh, uh, we need to uh, encounter our neighbors and encounter our uh, visitors uh, that come to Sedona uh, by getting onto a uh, mass transit uh, hub and uh, going out to the trailheads, which is really the thing that I would like to see, uh, is uh, having quick, easy access where you get dropped off and you know that you're going to be quickly picked up if you uh, come back to the trailhead. And that is, and that is the first target for, for next uh, March, to have shuttles that go to four different routes, and there would be multiple trailhead parking lots that they would be uh, dropped off at, and perhaps those parking lots would be closed, so that the only way you could reach a trailhead would be by transit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I would just like to say that uh, I used to be an avid biker. Uh, I used to bike up in uh, Minnesota. I actually biked all year round when I lived in Minnesota, even when it was snowing. Uh, I biked in Flagstaff. And when I came to Sedona, I never biked. Uh, I don't go anywhere on a bike because I don't feel comfortable riding on these roads. Uh, so uh, I've always felt comfortable all over the place, but I just never do it here. So I do think that a lot does need to be done to make it easier for someone to just hop on a bike and get to where they want to go, even if it's just to another mass transit or whatever. I just think that there can be a lot, uh, that, lot can, that, a lot that can be done to make it a lot easier. So have you? Tr- so you haven't tried the shared use paths that are being not built? Yet. Not yet. Well, you should try the one on well, Sanborn. Well, well, where I live, I have to get out onto 89A. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we need a we need a path connector to where I live, or at least something that makes it a little bit easier, so that you feel a little bit safer. And I, and I know that so many people feel the same way that uh, that they would be more likely to get out on their bike if they just felt a little bit safer. Uh, that's a really good point. And I think that, you know, the the GO plan, which has the shared use paths across the city, is in the process of being implemented. So there's, as I said, Sanborn, Thunder Mountain. There's going to be one on Chapel Road, one um, on uh, Dry Creek. Right. So they're they're popping up mm-hmm. all over. Yeah, I've, uh, I go down Dry Creek quite a bit, and uh, I'm excited to see uh, what's going to happen there with that that path there. Um, uh, of course, I think again the issue is connecting it to other places, uh, and for me to get to a point where I feel comfortable to get to the path. Uh, so uh, I, I think that the city's doing the right thing. I think it's on the right track. I think this is exactly what we need. Um, but uh, I can just tell you historically, that's always been my concern. So let's get back to to climate. Do we have reasons to be hopeful uh, and do we have reasons to be pessimistic? Yeah, the two main reasons I have to be hopeful is all of the scientists I'm reading are saying, look, we have a plan. We've got a way that we can reduce warming uh, and we can start seeing this by the end of this century if we start following the plan. Uh, and so they have very specific proposals. They say we know how to do this. Uh, And so it's a matter of the will to do what the science says. Uh, I'm also optimistic because I know that the younger generations uh, have that will. Uh, I'm concerned that uh, they will grow more pessimistic as they grow older. Uh, But they currently have that drive uh, to do what the scientists are are saying. 
my biggest uh, pessimism is looking at uh, the way science in general is being treated these days, uh, the way education is being treated, uh, and uh, but specifically science. Uh, when we look at the response to the pandemic, uh, that's one of my big concerns. Uh, the, the kinds of misinformation that's out there uh, is, frankly, uh, what, what I was already seeing this kind of misinformation around climate change. And then when I started to see it in the pandemic, it was like they just kind of turned a switch and changed the subject to a new scientific area. And, and I think it's really undermining people's trust in science. And that's the big challenge. Like I said, I think the science has the solution and we need the will. But uh, there's a, a lot of undermining of the trust in science. And why do you think that that's occurring? Because that's to me, that seems like it's it's recent. Perhaps I'm wrong, but I feel like in the last several years, people have been very resistant to science and not following the science. Well, you know, it's it's one of the features of science, I think, that is sometimes being exploited, and that is the uh, the upfront behavior, the upfront attitude that science has to say these are the things we don't know. Uh, that's what science does a lot of. It says, okay, you know, it, it doesn't do so much reporting on the things that we feel confident about, but it actually does more kind of uh, self-reporting on what uh, we're unsure of. And this is easy to exploit by people who don't want to do what science says. They say, aha, you don't know this. And, and we see this a lot, again, like I said, with uh, COVID-19. Uh, there isn't 100% certainty from the very beginning of the pandemic. There's a lot that has to be learned. And so what people then only end up noticing is, oh, there were all these things that you didn't know. And even though there's greater certainty about other things, people really only notice the uncertainty. And they feel that, for example, the guidelines change. And they're like, well, what's going on here? Why do I have to do something different now? And, and it's hard to understand. And all they see is the uncertainty. And there's a general distrust in, in government. Mm -hmm. I know it is unsettling when, you know, on Monday, the CDC has certain recommendations. And on Friday, those recommendations have been changed. I think all of us feel unsettled. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, yeah. So what would you... What would you tell the audience about how to calm themselves down? Well, you know, we naturally want normalcy. We, we naturally want things to be comfortable so that they're familiar, so that we know what we're doing. You know, people don't like knowing uh, or don't like being unsure about whether they need to wear a mask or not. Uh, and so that's a great amount of uncertainty that, uh, that they feel unsettled by. Um, but I think that... Here we kind of come back to that philosophical point, and uh, uh, like I said, philosophy is the love of wisdom, and it's said that wisdom begins in wonder, uh, and it's when we start wondering about our world that we start to inquire more into it, and we learn more about it, and so I think we need to have kind of a childlike wonder about what is going on, and a curiosity, and a recognition that we may not necessarily know everything. And it requires kind of having a, a comfort with uncertainty sometimes. Uh, and uh, that doesn't mean that we don't know anything, uh, but it does mean that we have to be open to the questions that come up. Uh, and there's, there is a kind of a marvel in science of uh, uh, the, the, the things that 
expose the limits of our knowledge. Uh, and, and it's uncomfortable to be at that point sometimes where we aren't sure about what we know. And, um, I, I, and I don't want to overemphasize the, the lack of knowledge. That's, that's the danger. But we do need to get a little bit more comfortable with the uh, lack of certainty. Science is not going to give us 100% certainty. It's always only a probability. And um, I like to remind people, and people don't like to fly next to me on an airplane, uh, but I like to ask, you know, how certain are you that the airplane is safe to fly? Um, if you ask your passengers <laughs> sitting next if, to you? If, if it comes up. <laughs> <laughs> if they start asking what I do and I say philosophy and they start asking a little bit more, uh, I might bring up, uh, you know, how certain are we that this airplane is safe? Uh, we have to put a lot of trust, a lot of faith in the systems that are in place. Uh, no one person is certain that the airplane is safe. There's a very, very high probability that it is safe because of all the systems that work together. So I'm not trying to make people nervous about flying, but uh, we need to be, pay attention to how much do I really know that, that I'm really certain about and how much is there a, a degree of faith in systems that are in place. And as you said, people are challenging the systems. People are challenging government. People are challenging science to undermine it. And they're doing it on purpose, frankly. Some people are. Well, those are excellent points, but I'm not going to sit next to you <laughs> on the next flight. I'll sit a few rows in front of you. Uh, so, you know, this summer we've had uh, a lot of fear about, and rightfully so, about wildfires. And right in our backyard, the Raphael Fire really challenged uh, us. And I actually live in, in an area where we were on the ready status and it wasn't too far away from me where they were on set status. Have wild, you know, has climate change impacted the wildfires? And now people are are extremely nervous that Sedona is the next paradise. Mm. And how are we going to get out of town if we need to, since we have very limited roadway systems? So what advice, you know, what, what, what do you have to say about that? And what advice would you give folks? Well, this is a, a new uncertainty that we're going to have to learn to live with uh, because of uh, what we're doing with the climate. And this is exactly what's predicted by the scientists, is that uh, our weather patterns are going to become uh, more uncertain. Uh, and less predictable, and we're not going to have quite the regular patterns that we're accustomed to. And I've talked to a young guy on a hotshot crew, and uh, he says that when he talks to the old-timers that the fires that they're fighting now are nothing like the fires that they grew up fighting, uh, and that they're more intense and that they're more unpredictable. Uh, and so there are greater challenges for the people that are trying to secure our area against wildfires. And again, scientists won't say that climate change caused the Raphael fire. Fires are natural to this environment, but uh, climate, do, climate science does say that we are increasing the likelihood that the fires are going to be more intense, that they're going to grow out of control, and they're going to be less predictable. Now, is this due to carbon emissions? It's due to the warming environment. It's due to the drying of the southwest. It's a drought that we're currently experiencing. Uh, it's due to the changing patterns of water and moisture in the atmosphere. 
What's interesting is that uh, the uh, expectation of a warming planet is that it will warm, but simultaneously will also have more moisture in the atmosphere. So overall, the globe is going to have more humidity. But the problem is we don't know where exactly that humidity is going to be. And several years ago, the Midwest farmers had some serious floods that they'd never encountered before because it just so happens that around the Mississippi area, that's where all the moisture was. And that's part of what's unpredictable. Uh, and we wish it was a spread out a little bit more, but we just don't know what kinds of patterns we're going to have. So th do you think that the wildfires caused us to have monsoons this year for the first time in a couple of years? And then those monsoons created a lot of flooding. Flagstaff, I saw some photos of, of uh, some really dangerous flooding and uh, right in the center of town. And I know in uptown here, a lot of a lot there was a lot of property damage as a result of flooding as well. So are they connected? So we wouldn't say that they one causes the other. Um, and I've not read anything that really sees any connection between the monsoons and the wildfires, except that the lack of monsoons historically the past few years means that the wildfires are going to be a little bit worse. But the predictions that I've seen is that uh, the monsoons are going to become less frequent but more intense when they do come. And that's a little bit like what we're seeing, I think. And so we need to be anticipating that when we do get the storms, they're going to be worse. And uh, if you look at what happened in Flagstaff, the, the flooding there was really a result of the burn that occurred previously. So a burn uh, created a lot of damage, and then it became more susceptible to a stronger monsoon once the monsoon did come. Uh, and so the flooding gets a little bit worse in that particular situation. Now, have the you raised a good point about the change in the way in which fire remediation is, is happening. And they did an absolutely brilliant job the hotshot crews that came in here and saved our area. I have the most uh, admiration for them. Uh, it was, they were just incredible. But are they going to need to change their use of technology or their methods so that they're aware of the potential for flooding and the potential that, you know, the, the techniques that they use could be causing issues in other areas? I'm not sure about that. Uh, it is possible that the techniques they're using for fighting the fires, this, this gets a little bit beyond my ability. The, the, the crews that are doing that work, that's their specialty. But uh, I will say that uh, there's a bit of irony in knowing that uh, we're going through a drought, that things are very, very dry. We've got these wildfires that are getting out of hand, and we're watching these very large airplanes consuming fossil fuels, dumping water on these fires, uh, basically contributing to global warming while trying to fight global warming. And that's, that's the, the real challenge. Is, uh, I do think that we need to uh, adjust our technology, but at that point, I'm not saying that we shouldn't fly an airplane to, to fight a fire. We should. Right. <laughs> so... Let's change a little bit of the subject. Uh, we hear more and more about the notion of environmental justice. Could you explain from your perspective what that means and and how that is, you know, w what we should recognize and how we should handle it? 
Yeah, so the United States is actually in a very fortunate position. Uh, we have the resources to address climate change as well as uh, we're actually not feeling the impact quite as much yet. Uh, but other nations are much more vulnerable. And so it is often the poorer nations that are having to address climate change first. And we're seeing this all over the world. We see this in places like Myanmar. We see this in Syria and uh, Guatemala and El Salvador. These are all places that have experienced difficulties with their environment, most notably uh, droughts for the most part, although Myanmar has been getting uh, torrential floods. Uh, and um, Syria uh, climate scientists now say uh, the civil war that occurred in Syria was made worse by uh, global warming. And there's numerous articles that uh, that detail this, that the drought that occurred there uh, was intensified because of global warming. And what happened was the farmers that were living out in the country were unable to grow their crops. So many of them came into the cities to try to find work. And then there, then there was uh, a glut of people, uh, and there was a lot of conflict then. And then the conflicts become noticeable as, as if they are sectarian or ethnic uh, types of conflicts. And that's what we see them as, but we don't see what may have actually brought the people into the same space and into that conflict. So they were already in a stressed environment. And then what we notice a little bit more are the sectarian differences that then kind of bumbles, uh, bubbles up into uh, vis uh, visible violence. And in Guatemala and El Salvador, people are in the same situation. They're not able to grow crops like, like they're used to. So they have to migrate. They move to other places. And then that's creating stresses at borders across countries. And so uh, here's where we're really seeing folks that are suffering directly from climate change. And I think that we really need to be clear about making a connection to climate change when we see that people are migrating. I'm not saying every time a person migrates it's because of climate change, but often there are these underlying stresses that contributes to it. So do you think that the, you, you mentioned Guatemala, what about the other countries in uh, Central and Latin America and our own border crises? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's where I, I think that uh, we need to be clear that uh, this is connected to climate change and this is one of the things that scientists have predicted is that we are going to see more migrations as people have to try to adapt to a changing planet. And so that's where we're getting these conflicts. And so I think it's uh, helpful to, to point out every time we report on uh, something going on at the border that what may have motivated folks to move. Uh, it may have been because of food shortages and water shortages and that they're trying to get to a place that's more stable. And like I said, the United States is relatively stable as far as the climate here. Uh, we've seen some disruption recently, but uh, for the most part, we're not suffering as much as others. And so this is a justice issue. Uh, the United States is responsible for uh, more emissions for a longer period of time per capita uh, than any other nation around the world. China has now exceeded us in their total emissions, but China per capita per person still emits less emissions than the United States per person. So let me understand this. Are you are you positing that that the impacts of what we do in the United States is causing the global warming other countries are feeling and the 
lack of their ability to grow their crops is caused by the United States emissions? Uh, we're a very, very large contributor to that, yes. And so there's a sense of this ethical responsibility then. Uh, and uh, that means that we have some responsibility for uh, what other people are experiencing elsewhere on the globe. And and so in Sedona, if we meet our targets, what does it mean for the rest of the world? Uh, that's a good point. Uh, so we might meet our targets and we may feel good about ourselves that we've done the right thing. But if we don't get enough other people around the world to meet their targets as well, then we may still have suffering around the world as a result of climate change. So this is one of these paradoxes, as you might do everything right, but climate change is still going to happen because we need to get as many people as possible to uh, do what is right. And, and I just want to add again, because we, we mentioned earlier about infrastructure and we mentioned again about uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the justice uh, that's experienced by other countries around the world. Uh, one of the best ways to improve uh, people's lives in a poor country is to give them access to a solar panel that they can use to charge a phone that gives them access to the Internet. And for I was going to check the price this morning. I don't remember now what exactly the price is today. But uh, for about $100, you can buy a 300-watt solar panel, a single 4 by 2 solar panel. And that's enough to charge a cell phone and give you access to the Internet so that you have information that's available so that you can make choices. And you can really dramatically change a person's life in a poorer country with a very simple technology. And notice, it does not require massive infrastructure. You don't have to install utilities to every person in the world. You can move that solar panel anywhere. And so it's actually a very simple technology that can actually bring a lot of people out of poverty if we help to encourage this and spread this technology. You know, I did notice a number of years ago, I was in Mexico and driving out uh, to see some of the ruins you go through the countryside and see where people live out of the resort communities that you stay in. And I, what it really hit me was the fact that uh, there were a lot of homes that were basically shacks, but there was, <laughs> but there was on the roofs of those homes, there were dishes, satellite dishes for uh, television. And whatever else one might use with satellites. So where's the electric, you know, you're talking about now using solar for these purposes, but solar wasn't available when, at the time I'm talking about. So how did electricity get uh, into these rural areas? Well, I'm not familiar with the specific place that yeah. you're referring to, but I do know that in a lot of these places it's often illegally tapped into. Uh, which actually is very, very dangerous for the people that are doing that. So it actually creates a health hazard when people are trying to get electricity and they don't have access to it. But that's my understanding. I, I know someone who lived in an area like this, that that was what he described was uh, yeah, at one point he was himself trying to tap into uh, an electrical system, which is very, very dangerous. Uh, so it, this is the interesting thing is uh, uh, people want the technology. They want the information and they will often endanger themselves to get access to that. And I, again, I think that if you, uh, 
helped to encourage people to get access to solar panels. Again, $100 is going to be tough for someone like that, um, but for us, it's not. And if we can be exporters and bring the price down of these uh, technologies, you know, I'm, I'm just amazed that Arizona is not the center for exporting solar technology. It just, to me, just is uh, shameful that we're not doing more here in this state because we have so much plentiful sunshine. That we do. Well, let's talk about water a little bit uh, in our last few minutes. Uh, I read that the uh, that Lake Powell was going to hit the lowest level that it had since it was constructed in the '60s, I believe. Uh, and and then the and then due to the monsoons, the fact that we have had some rain it might have delayed that one day. So it was supposed to be over the weekend, but the, I think it was last weekend. But the impact of the of the monsoons was perhaps going to, to make that lowest point on Monday instead of on Saturday or Sunday. What can we do about this? Uh, well, that's a good question. Um, uh, if I remember right, I heard that uh, Lake Powell is at about 36% capacity, something like that. And you're, you're right, it is the lowest, I think, that it's been. And uh, we may get a little bit of a stall here and there. But uh, this is uh, this is one of these areas that I'm not sure there's a good answer for this yet. And this is why it's so important that we start trying to reverse this as much as possible. Uh, Las Vegas spent a lot of money. Uh, essentially drilling under Lake Mead mm-hmm. and installing essentially a bathtub drain. They're basically saying, okay, we're ready to drain this to get every last drop of water out of Lake Mead if we need to. Uh, and that's pretty scary. <laughs> so that's not a plan for filling the, uh, the reservoir. Uh, and uh, I think we uh, have to be hoping that we're going to be getting more rain. Uh, and what can we do? The best thing that we can do, I think, is to try to reverse climate change. Uh, we're probably not going to see significant change in our lifetime. Uh, it's going to take concerted action in our lifetime to help people and future generations to recover from this. So it's not like things that we do now are going to uh, fill up the reservoirs again. Uh, it's going to have to be a long-term plan that goes cross generations. It's not just about our own generation. Uh, so, you know, the primary source of the, the water uh, in the Lake Powell is mainly from the Colorado snowmelt. And Colorado is getting a lot less snow. And uh, the, the monsoon may have helped us by one day, but it's, it's going to keep dropping. <laughs> So artificial snow may be good for skiers, but it is not going to save the planet. No, no. So what do you think that uh, we haven't talked about that you would like to share? Well, I, I think the, the probably the biggest thing is I think that this is a, a crisis that calls on us to become more informed about what's going on. I think this is an opportunity for us all to learn more about science, to learn more about the climate. It is fascinating to learn about it, but it's also kind of fascinating to learn about the misinformation that's out there and how it is that people challenge the science. So I strongly recommend that folks look at the uh, new report that's coming out this year by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. That's 
the IPCC, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It is a difficult read, but I think everyone should at least read their uh, executive summary. It's only a few pages long, and I think really everyone should be familiar with it. And who, who is this organization? It's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. This was formed by the United Nations. It's not uh, driven by the United Nations, but was originally formed by the United Nations. And it's a collection of scientists from all around the world that are working on the current state of science around climate change. Okay. Well, thank you, Matt. I, I know that you're going to be leading a lecture and discussion on media and propaganda at the Mary D. Fisher Theater on Sunday, August 8th at 1 p.m. So uh, if people are interested, you can purchase your tickets at the Sedona Film Festival uh, com. And I'd like to thank the Democrats of the Red Rocks for their support of this show and encourage a visit to their website where you'll see upcoming programs. I also want to thank the Yavapai Democratic Party and Steve Segner at El Portal Hotel. And thank you very much, Matt, for joining us today. You've been listening to Democratic Perspective, brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show focusing on the political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and our nation at large. Catch us every Monday morning after the 8 a.m. news, right here on AM 780 KAZM. It's beautiful out there, folks. Have a great day.